And if you are joining us from downstairs, we invite you invite you to begin to direct your attention to the, the monitor there and open in your scriptures to Psalm 85. We're beginning a new series uh, for the next few weeks uh, before we, we return to our study of Exodus. We're beginning a, a series for the month of January that we've entitled uh, Gospel Wakefulness gospel wakefulness, or gospel awakening, I should say. Thank you. And um, the inspiration for that series theme and title will be, uh, will be evident in the psalm that we are considering this morning, Psalm uh, 85. Uh, I recently listened to... Uh, a, a professor in history uh, from West Point, um, Dr. Uh, Robin McDonald is his name. He's a scholar and excellent teacher. Uh, he taught uh, on the first great awakening, which for those of you that aren't familiar with that term, uh, in the mid-1700s in this country and in uh, Europe, um, the the Lord in his uh, mercy and power visited, uh, visited churches, visited, um, visited communities in some extraordinary uh, and enduring ways. Uh, non-believers, or what I'll call nominal Christians, which I'll explain what that is, were converted, and believers whom had, if you will, fallen asleep, uh, were awakened at the nearness of God. Their, their sins were convicted. Their experience of God's mercy and forgiveness was renewed. They, there was just a deep and abiding sense of, um, of God's goodness and greatness that impacted those communities. The youth of those communities were impacted. The elderly of those communities were impacted. And so much so that they wrote about it and recorded uh, uh, in journals and in uh, letters what God was doing. Psalm 85 is one of the psalms that people like George Whitfield, if that's a name familiar with you, Jonathan Edwards, um, some of the other leading voices of that time, turn to to understand what God was doing in what they called the Great Awakening. And so we're going to take a look at it this morning. And our prayer is that this will stir our hearts for the Lord's awakening work in our lives and in our world uh, today as we begin a new year together. Psalm 85, I'm going to read the entire psalm. It's a short psalm, and then we'll pray. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath and you turned from your hot anger. Restore us again. O God of our salvation, 
and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we say with the psalmist, restore us again, O God of our salvation. And we pray, Lord, as we consider this psalm, Lord, that not only would you awaken within each of us a longing for more, for more of Christ as the only hope for our lives, but you would stir within us, Lord, Stir within our, our praying and stir within our waiting and stir within our embracing of your promises, Lord. An even deeper, confident faith that you are the God of new beginnings and awakenings. And therefore, Lord, we can turn to you through Christ and ask you, for more of the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's difficult to find the right words for what I'm attempting to do in this series. Awakening is the word I've settled on. Renewal is another word that I've read or considered, but it, it it seems almost too soft a word to capture. And revival, although I believe in revivals, re revival in our day brings with it connotations of tent meetings and plan gatherings and summer uh, encampments that I think can in some ways make that word cumbersome. So I've settled on the word awakenings, gospel awakenings, to refer to this when, and I have a quote by Ray Ortland who wrote a book on this, an awakening is a season of life in the church, he uses the word revival, when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. Revival is the season of life in the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. So the year was 
1980. I was a senior in high school, and a new church had been planted in the mainline suburbs of Philadelphia, Church of the Savior. It's still there today. Nancy DeMoss's father, if you're familiar with Nancy DeMoss, Arthur DeMoss, was, their family was instrumental in the starting up of this church. Very few people at that time were starting new churches uh, in the affluent suburbs of Philadelphia. Church planning wasn't even something that people talked about very much. You had established churches, and if you were a Christian, you went to those churches, um, even churches that maybe had lost their passion for the gospel, and you attended those churches seeking to reform them from within. But this was a new church. It was a small church. And each summer, Arthur would have these tent meetings where he would invite people like Billy Graham and other well-known evangelists in to speak to invited guests. It was open to the public, but to invited guests. Many of them lived in the suburbs. They were the people who commuted to Philadelphia to hear the gospel, to be sung songs about Christ, to hear stories of conversion. And, and that made a little difference. When the church was founded, they started a small youth group, like the youth group we have, called SALT. It was made up of about 15 kids, and a pastor, and a couple of volunteers. And SALT, like your typical youth group, did what youth groups do. They played really cool games. They sang songs with loud instruments that weren't sung in church. And there was a message shared. But what they weren't expecting salt is that the kids who, when they joined the group, said they were Christians, actually became Christians. They were converted. They were convicted of their sins. The Lord revealed his mercy to them as a God who both punished his sins but sent Jesus to save them, rescue them, and forgive them, and they were dramatically brought into a relationship with him. And then Perry and Phil, the youth leaders, did something which years later reached me. They discipled those new converts in Christ, not to invite their friends to youth group, although they would do that, but to go and share what happened to them in public school. And so over time, the captain of the soccer team was converted. The president of like the math club was converted. I think even the English teacher who taught classical literature was converted. When, when Jeff told her that the Gospel of John, which they read at that time in classical literature, was about Jesus and not about all the literary stuff that he was... That revival that began with just a few kids lasted for almost 10 years. When it was all said and done, hundreds of thousands of public school kids were converted. In public school, through the simple witness and then the discipleship that followed, 
that was called CORE. You were converted and invited to a discipleship group and taught how to read your Bible using navigator materials and taught the importance of evangelism. And he had vision for involvement in a local church, but Church of Savior didn't want everybody coming to their church, so they sent me back, a new believer, to Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church, which had left gospel territory a long time ago. And I'm meeting with the pastors, sharing the gospel with them, and they're basically telling me, we don't believe that anymore. What do you mean you don't believe that anymore? It's in the Bible. I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about. You can look that awakening up in the same way you can look up the Welsh revival and the great, it's called the mainline revival. There hasn't been one since. And Church of Savior being an imperfect church, they've gone through church splits and they've church planted. You know, they're made up of people like me that are sinners and need grace. And, but there was never a season like that then. Which brings me to Psalm 85. Psalm 85 envisions us that God, it's his heart, it is his heart to, to awaken people to his glory as revealed in Christ. And so I want this to both encourage us because it does reveal God's heart. He is the God of awakenings who delights to do this, but also to stir within us the praying that this psalm envisions us for and the waiting that this psalm equips us to do as we embrace God's promises together. Psalm 85 awakens us to long for more of Christ as the only hope for our lives, and for our world. And let me just say, as we go through this, you may have stories or testimonies uh, or chapters, if you will, from your life and experience where you are aware of modern-day revivals and awakenings here in New England. I would love to hear them. I would love to hear your story. I would love to hear when God has visited his church and visited communities in order to, in the, in the words of Ray Ortland, cause the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power as we're going to read about. And send them to me, let me know about them, and I will listen intently. The psalm breaks into four parts. You see the paragraph breaks there, and we'll walk through each part efficiently in the time that remains. The first part, verses one through three, the psalmist instructs God's people to remember God's grace. He begins the psalm by reminding Israel to remember God's grace. And he does so when he says this, Lord, you were favorable to your land, speaking of the past, you restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of their people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Now, we aren't told this, but we are given a clue as to what time he is referring to when he speaks of 
fortunes being restored and favor being demonstrated to God's people when he covered all their sin. It says that this psalm was composed by the sons of Korah. And those of you that are readers of the New Testament or Old Testament, you're familiar with the family Korah. There was a particular incident in their family history in number 16 when Korah, along with men from various tribes, Reuben, um, the tribe of Reuben, Dathan, Abiram, um, became insolent and they declared it was a time for a change in the leadership of Israel at that time. In other words, Moses and Aaron had to go. I'm reading from my notes. And they presented this to all the congregation in Numbers 16, verse 3, and basically said, who set Moses and Aaron over us as leaders of the band? Moses and Aaron were then instructed by God to tell the congregation of Israel to move away from the tents of Korah, from Dathan and Abiram, these new insurgent leaders, and suddenly the earth opened up and they, they went down to their graves alive. But it says in our psalm that some of the descendants of Korah found favor with God. Not all the descendants of Korah were cut off on that day. And thus we see that the Lord did not hold against the descendants of Korah, the faults that overtook their fathers in that generation, but instead raised these sons of Korah to even greater heights by allowing them to write psalms like Psalm 42 and 49 and Psalm 85 and others. In fact, 2 Chronicles 20 tells us that the Korahites stand with the Levites in leading the people to praise the Lord. So the writers of this psalm had personally experienced Yahweh's precious mercies and its renewing, awakening effects. In other words, God had given them a fresh start, a new beginning. And now they're being used by God to call their generation and us through the psalms and other people who read Psalm 85 to the same God of grace. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Can you remember a time in your past, recent or distant, where the Lord in his kindness and mercy and graciousness was responsible for giving you benefits and blessings that were undeserving, unexpected, yet deeply meaningful. Certainly, when you were converted, when you believed the gospel for the first time, when your eyes were opened and you realized, God is holy, really holy, and I am not, yet Christ lived and died for me in dying on the cross and being raised again and now seated at the right hand of majesty. In turning to him, I can receive mercy, be forgiven of my sins and restored in my relationship with his father 
through the Holy Spirit, through faith in Christ again. Can you remember a time in your past when God's mercy and kindness and undeserved forgiveness was responsible for bringing you blessings and benefits that you enjoy? I imagine you can. However, this psalm also raises to me and to you that there are times in our lives where we tend to forget what God has done. We tend to, we tend to what psychologists call, uh, have long-term memory decay, whatever that means. And we struggle to recover and retrieve those memories because of things in the present that are interfering with the retrieval of the past, or things in the past that interfere with us remembering in the present what we know to be true. So this psalm says God is present to give you new memories when you, like me, stink at remembering the old ones. And he does that because when God awakens us, it teaches us in that moment to remember that God of the Bible is a God of grace. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob for you forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all your sin. That's the first point. As we begin, let me urge you to remember God's grace in your past and to, in remembering it, pray for God to make new memories in the present because of his graciousness, for he is the God of awakening. Second point, this is a psalm of prayer. Really, this entire psalm, some have suggested comes out of a time of prayer. In fact, the pattern of the psalm fits nicely into a, a corporate prayer uh, for the congregation. Verses four through seven, we pray for God's reviving work in the present, for God's awakening work in the present. Restore us again, O God of your salvation, and put away your indignation to us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Perhaps this gives us an indication why the psalmist, the son of Korah, is leading Israel to look to the past. Perhaps the God's people again have drifted into a spiritual sluggishness, indifference, dullness, towards the Lord. I so appreciated when Dan read that passage from uh, Galatians about not growing weary and doing good. And although we all can grow weary and doing good, we also, through our weariness, can grow sluggish and indifferent and even dull to believing God desires to awaken us and others in the present. And so there can be this 
barrier within our own hearts towards the joyful experience of God's awakening presence and salvation. And so this psalm is written to take us by the hand and lead us again to the God who awakens us. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, as you know, but all of the verbs in verses four through seven, if we were to underline them, deserve scholarly attention because they all signify present action. Restore us, that's restore us today. Put away your indignation toward us, that's today. Revive us, verse six, that's present today that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant it your salvation. I think as we sing that song, Amazing Grace, this week from our hearts, we're saying to the Lord, show us again your steadfast love. Show me today as I'm driving to work. Demonstrate your steadfast love. And we're not surprised as we do that that he reminds us of what is true given to us in the gospel, but also because of those realities, he is with us in that moment because he loves us. He has put away his indignation from us in Christ. His favor is towards us. And so we can pray as we go into our day, Lord, revive us again. Lord, lead me and others to rejoice in you again. Lord, show us your steadfast love again. I love nicknames from people who don't really know me, but know that I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And once in a while in these conversations, it slips out. I think it's part jest, but it's, there's, a, there's a little element of truth I know. And uh, this one really got me. I've never been called this before. And I, I, there's just a part of me, I, I should have probably been more offended, but I just thought it was hysterical. Someone recently suggested that because of what I believe, and not even what I say on Sundays, that I am a menace to society. Isn't that how you think of me as I'm driving out? There goes a menace to society. And the person felt so passionate about this that they decided they needed to share it with some other people. And so someone came to me and said, you know that so-and-so thinks you're a menace to society. And I said, really? That's amazing. Like that's, I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, the person who brought it to me was very concerned. Like, did you say something? Did you threaten this person? Uh, did you, um, and basically, besides the fact that this person didn't like the work they were having to do for me, someone had just told them, you know, he's a pastor of a church in Franklin, and this is what they believe. Jesus is king, or, and that was his her, it was a him, response. There would have been a time in my life where I would have felt so 
angry that my reputation was being in any way diminished by a knucklehead, that I would have gone to that person and pinned them to the wall with my words or my attitudes or some. And instead, the next time I saw that person, I sat down right next to them and we had a conversation and I was on a mission to absolutely convince him or her that not only was I not a menace to society, but that, being humble, if I had said or done something that concerned him or offended him or distressed her or in any way confused her, please tell me. How did I do that as my glasses go crazy? God had awakened me. And that's what God does with us when we become sluggish or indifferent towards him. When he providentially leads us in ways that don't make sense to us or causes us to wait for promises that we feel we need answers now. Or Lord, I've been faithful to wait on these promises and I'm waiting for you to show your favor. But this feels more costly and difficult being a follower of you than what I expected. And so the psalmist urges us, based on our absolute confidence that God is a God of grace, verses 1 to 3, to revive our prayers to him and say to him, Lord, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on me. Show your steadfast love again. Grant us your salvation. We pray for God's revival. Jesus said it this way, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, Matthew 11, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. That's the promise given to people who whom were not Christians. That, that promise was originally announced to people who were not coming to him, did not believe in him. He's offering rest to people who thinks he's a menace to society, who are rejecting him. You can read the context in Matthew 11. And so that promise first comes to us as people who are not near. We feel far off from God. And he says, come to me and I will refresh you. Isn't that good news? That when now we come to him as his people, even when we have become sluggish or indifferent, the promise is true because our God is a God who delights to awaken us. The psalmist even goes so far as to say, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Verse 6. It's where the emphasis is. That's where the heart of the, the prayer directs us to go as we pray for awakening. That Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, and our Savior can not only renew his people but he can do it in a way that lifts us out of lifelessness and a, a lack of vitality. 
and awaken us into spiritual vitality again. Third point. Not only does the psalmist help us to remember God as a God of grace by remembering our past and equip us to pray for his reviving, awakening work in the present, he begins to envision us for future blessings and teaches us how to wait. Verse 8 and 9. Hear, O people, Oops. Let me hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. A wise pastor who, who mentors me and has been a friend now for several years was sharing with me about a situation in, in their, their ministry where uh, a particular leader, someone who was influential, had not only hardened his heart towards, towards leadership, but had even begun to walk away from the Lord, which had implications for not only the church, but for his family. And it was, a, it was an extremely difficult situation. And I asked, what do you, what do you say? in that moment? What do you say to the congregation? What do you say to him looking to the future if he indeed walks away from Christ altogether, if he rejects your counsel, if, if, the, if his actions continue to, to go down the road, having warned him and appealed to him and, and, and pleaded with him to repent, what do you say? And this is what he said, I'll never forget. He says, even if he falls into the deepest pit, Christ is there with him. Do you believe that? That's what he asked me. I said, do I believe that? How could I believe that? Look at what he's done. Look at what he said. Look at the impact. He goes, you were in the deepest pit, Bauer, and Christ met you there. Ah, the gospel, the blessing of the gospel, which doesn't minimize the warnings given to that individual, nor make the consequence of his actions any less, but it reminds us that there are future blessings when God comes to a broken people and restores them through repentance and faith in his son. Surely it says salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in your land. There is probably not a more clear and vivid assurance of God's forgiveness and fatherly love than this psalm as it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who brings those future blessings to us. He said this to his disciples as he was about to depart. Peace I leave with you, John 14, verse 27. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Christ is what we need to be our Savior forever. That we would not turn back to folly, verse 8. But when we do, 
we would believe that his salvation is still near to us. The Lord, Philippians 4, 6 and 9, is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let me conclude with this. I'll hold on the final three verses. This psalm is given to you and to us and to me as a means for God to awaken you and me and us as we begin a new year. That we would long for more of Christ and find in him not only the only hope for our lives but for our world. So as I close, I want to ask you four application questions. And I want to encourage you not only to consider your own soul, considering your heart, but consider Psalm 85 and where it takes us in order to answer these questions when we worship the God who awakens us. Jim, these are my closing application questions as I conclude. How real has God been to your heart this week? If you were honest. I'm not asking, did you read your Bible? I'm not asking, did you memorize the song? I'm not asking, did you go to church or not? Which is wonderful. We should be in church. But how real has God been? I'm not asking, did you read a blog? or an article, I'm asking, was God real? How clear, secondly, and vivid is your assurance of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? These are questions actually that were asked that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones published during the Welsh Revival as marks of true faith and conversion. How clear and vivid is your assurance that God has forgiven you all of your sins and loves you deeply as a father? Third, am I conscious of a growing sense of sin in my heart? And in what areas have I displaced Christ from the center of your life? Linda and I were having a coffee yesterday. She shared an observation from our time with our kids. And I wish my first response was gentle and lowly, Jesus-like. It was defensive and lawyerly. He said, what? She suggested this. I am the most humble person I know. How could they miss that while we were together for vacation? That's literally what I said on coffee. Hmm. That moment I realized I need a growing sense, don't I, of my own corruption and selfishness. For Christ in those observations clearly had been displaced from the center of my heart and my defensiveness revealed it. 
And then last, how is the Spirit leading you and I to a greater dependence on Christ's mercy, greater than the past? I love it when we share our stories of conversion and testimony. They're wonderful. Let's keep doing it. But then let's ask the next question. So, how does remembering your conversion lead you and I to a greater dependence on His mercy today? Well, I don't need that anymore, right? Oh, no, you need it just as much, if not more. I do. And when we do, God is awakening us, isn't he? So that we would rejoice, rejoice, rejoice again in his steadfast love. Psalm 85 will awaken you and I to long for more of Christ. As it has in the past, it will do it again as the only hope for Christ. May, as we reflect on this psalm and allow its pattern to shape the contours and confession of our week, lead us to a more real, intimate communion with God this week, cause us to grow in our confidence and vivid assurance of God's fatherly love and forgiveness, experience the sweetness of conviction, not the defensiveness of it, that we might restore Christ to the center of that part of our life and be led to an ever greater dependence on Him and his mercy than in the past. Let's pray. Lord, the gradual dawn of gospel wakefulness occurs as the Spirit brings to mind, through his word, your gracious dealings with us in the past and your merciful promises in the present that we would cling by faith to Christ even more and depend on him even more. This gospel truth is writ more largely on our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to stare, stare at the glory of God revealed in Psalm 85. And we would keep staring until we see it. We would keep beholding you until we see you as you awaken us to your glory. We pray that not only for ourselves, Lord, we pray that for our our communities, that you would begin with the church, but Lord, bring back to these communities gospel awakenings, gospel revivals, where both church and neighbor alike have a real sense, a vivid sense, a clear sense that the Lord is near today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand.